want to look ahead at one of the final verses in this passage, you'll see a question is raised. Verse 10, as Jesus is entering into the city, the crowd asks, who is this? Right? Are we surprised that in the Gospel of Matthew, as we've been in it for 17 years, are we surprised that the Gospel of Matthew is bringing us face-to-face with the identity of Jesus Christ? Is that a surprise for us? No, that's what Matthew has always been about, week in and week out. His purpose is to put forward the person of Jesus Christ. He wants his readers to know who Jesus is. He wants us uh, to know who Jesus is. So who is this? Who is Jesus? I don't want to make assumptions this morning that you know the answer to that question. Right? It's possible that you've been brought here this morning. You've never heard about Jesus. You don't know who he is. Maybe you've heard his name. But you don't know him. Trust that today, as we journey through this passage, you'll come to know, maybe for the first time, Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you've been listening to the voices of culture, the people of this world who've made assumptions and who in some ways have clouded and distorted your understanding of the nature and the identity of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you come with confusion or distortion, I pray that the Spirit of God would reveal Jesus truly to you. Maybe you're here today and you know little of Jesus. Maybe you actually know true things about Jesus, right? But maybe it's uh, inadequate. Maybe there's a fuller understanding that would be uh, appropriate for you to come to grips with today. So if you're here today and you have a true understanding, but an inadequate understanding of the fullness of Christ and his identity, I believe this passage can move us along to a greater and more full understanding of this question. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Remember, as we engage that question in such difficult times, right? Life can be hard. But in Jesus, there's always hope. Amen? I think this day, Palm Sunday, The triumphal entry, this passage, this revelation of Jesus is a hopeful one for us as the people of God. So I pray that as we journey through this text, that you find hope in Christ. Let's read together. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, 
Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that your spirit would reveal Jesus to us, that we would see him and know him more fully, that we would place our faith, hope, and trust in him more deeply. Oh God, have your way in us, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. If you've been following along at all in the book of Matthew, you know that Jesus has been on quite a journey, right? We know where he is right now. The, the passage tells us that we're uh, near the city of Jerusalem, and he's approaching, and he's across the Kidron Valley up in a little village called Bethpage. Uh, and so that's where Jesus is. We also have to understand, though, from where he came. Right? If we've been following along at all in Matthew, we know where he is, but we also know from where he came. Right? He's been spending the last three years of his ministry mostly in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, about 70 to 80 miles north. So he's been journeying down south to Jerusalem, and here he finds himself after all this ministry being done in Galilee where he has preached an authoritative message about the kingdom of God. And where he is healed with authority, many diseases authenticating his teaching. This is what we've been journeying through. We've been walking this road all along with Jesus. And now he must take his journey across the Kidron Valley, up the steps into the city of Jerusalem. And if we remember even some of the more recent passages, we know that this journey means what? Suffering. Jesus has told us on three occasions, I'm going to Jerusalem. And there, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. So here we are with the imminent suffering of Jesus. Jesus looking across the valley, preparing for his entrance into the city and going to the place he has told his disciples he would go to the place of unthinkable suffering. And so as he comes to the city, in many ways, that gives us insight into how he's going to enter. Right? And as we walk through this passage, that's what we see, that he's entering the city in a particular way to reveal who he is. He's going to show us who he is. As he enters the city in this way. Verses 2 and 3. Look with me. He says to his disciples. Go into the village in front of you. And immediately you're going to find a donkey. Tied in a colt with her. Untie them. 
and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. You can imagine that, telling the disciples, hey, guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ahead to the village. You're going to see a donkey tied up. I want you to untie it and bring it to me. And they're thinking, that's stealing. We shouldn't be taking somebody else's donkey, Jesus. But he understands, right? He's not just acting with some kind of unfair presumptuousness. No, he understands who he is. He understands where he is going and for the purpose that he's been sent. And so he tells his disciples, if anyone questions it, this is what you're to say. The Lord needs them. Don't miss that. The Lord needs them. In this moment, Jesus is proclaiming and revealing himself as the Lord. A term that was understand to be, yes, master, Lord, but also God. Jesus is calling himself Lord, and when he does so, he's claiming to be God. And in this moment, Jesus is staking claim to what is rightfully his. Anything. Everything. Anyone at any time. We come to know Jesus in this moment as he is approaching Jerusalem. We come to know Jesus as Lord, as God, as he stakes claim to what is rightfully his. Everything. And I wonder if we could just pause for a moment, maybe take a sidestep, and think about the implications of that for our life. If Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is God, if Jesus can stake claim to anything and everyone at any time, what are the implications of that for my life? That means that when it comes to every aspect and every possession in your life, that it's under the Lordship of Jesus. Do you understand? All of you is under the Lordship of Jesus. That's an inescapable reality. Your life is mine. Your marriage is mine. Your money is mine. Right? It's available to me because I'm God. Your decisions your dreams, your hopes, your goals, your home, right? The things that you would deem most precious to you are always under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Your identity as a person is under the lordship of Jesus. And what do we do with the thing that we consider the thing that governs us right we orient our life to it and so when we come to understand jesus as lord we understand that we're called to worship him with our life right like some of the issues that we face right now in our lives our marriages our decisions our resources our time some of the issues that we face they're lordship issues That's what we're dealing with. The tensions and struggles of living in this world, they're lordship issues. They're bringing us face to face with the question, who is Lord? 
who is the Lord of your life. And to be a little, take it a step further, it really becomes a worship issue. Because we worship that which governs us. We worship that what we deem to be most wonderful and beautiful. We worship what is Lord in our life. So see Jesus as Lord of all. Lord of your life. And worship Him for who He is. Worship Him. Not just in song today, but in every act, in every moment, in every decision. Orient your life to the Lordship of Jesus. That's who He is. And as He stakes claim to what is rightfully His, and as He speaks, He reveals Himself as what? Lord. Jesus says, I'm Lord. I'm Lord. Worship me. Worship me. But not only do we see him reveal himself here as Lord, but we also come to know that Jesus is the promised king as he fulfills prophecy. Look at verse 4 and 5. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. The way in which these events are taking place. Jesus' approach to Jerusalem, this is the fulfillment of what was spoken by Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9. This is what it says. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The way Jesus is entering Jerusalem is in fulfillment of the promises that were made 550 years prior. We see that this journey that Jesus is currently on across the Kidron Valley is more than a 30-year journey in his life. It's a 550-year journey, and even more so of seeing the promises and purpose of God being fulfilled in Jesus. That's what we see taking place. That as Jesus takes uh, stakes claim to this donkey, and as Jesus, uh, as we understand, gets on the donkey and begins to take his journey to Jerusalem, that these particular events are what? Fulfilling the very promises of God. And he's saying to the world and to Israel at this time, I'm the promised king. I'm the promised king. The one that you've been waiting for. The one that was promised long ago. That's me. I'm your king. I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one. I have come. As your king. And it's important to note the uniqueness of this. Verse 5 tells us that he comes humbly. That's how Jesus comes to the city. He comes humbly. When a king returns to the city, the king does not come humbly. The king comes with pride and his chest sticking out. Not mounted on a donkey, but mounted on a war horse in pride, right? And in strength. That's what would happen when the king would return victorious from battle and come back 
to a celebrative city with cheers, pomp, and circumstance will come in strength and pride, showing who he is, exhibiting a, a strength and a, and a power and an authority. But Jesus comes on a donkey as a symbol of his humility. I'm coming to my city, yes, to assume my throne, but in a very different way. I come in humility, right? I come in humility. And here we see that Jesus takes on the posture of a servant as he assumes his throne. Right? Have we not been looking at that over the last couple chapters? That his greatness is being revealed in his not-so-greatness by being a servant. If anyone among you wants to be great, what? Let him be a servant. It's not so among the Gentiles. They want to lord it over you. But if you want to be great, come as a servant. That's what the Son of Man, that's what, who I am, and that's what I'm doing. I'm coming to assume my throne, but I'm coming in a very unique way, in a way that shows my humility and my willingness to serve. I've come to give my life as a ransom. So, what we see here is Jesus is revealing himself as the promised king who's fulfilling prophecy. He's coming in humility. All this what, does at least two things. It highlights the faithfulness of God. God made a promise long ago that a king would come in humility and save Israel from its enemies. Amen? And now we see the fulfillment of that. All that expectation, all those hopes and dreams, all the despair in the history of Israel. Jesus has come, and God has kept his word. He is faithful to every one of his promises that he's made in Christ Jesus. Amen? I think that's a wonderful sidestep again to think about. As we're dealing with all that we deal with Monday through Saturday, as we wrestle with living in this world as a Christian... The wonderful truth that we can always depend upon is that God is faithful to his word. Even when it feels like it's never going to happen, even when seasons and decades and centuries go by, we might doubt it, but God is faithful. God is faithful. I'm going to send a king, he's going to come in humility, and he's going to serve and give his life, and here he is, the faithfulness of God in perfect display. That's Jesus. He's the promised king. He's come in humility. He's come to serve. And so because of that, not only do we rest in the faithfulness of God, but we anticipate Christ's perfect saving work. That's what's happening here. And so there he comes. Verses 6 through 9, right? The disciples went, did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd is saying, yes, let's honor him. Let's prepare a way. Let's show him the dignity that we believe he deserves. Yes, we think this is our king. He's going to assume his throne. And so they sing. 
with, with praise and expectation. They're shouting out in verse 9, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What in the world is going on here? Let's break this down, phrase by phrase, word by word here. Hosanna. Hosanna, what does that mean? We sang it. What does that mean? D.A. Carson says it really is simply a cry for salvation. But it's also praising God because it's, it's as good as done. There's an expectation there. There's a hope. But there's also a cry in despair. Please save us now. It's how it could be translated. Or just simply, save. Save. Save now. That's what the crowd is saying there. Crying out for salvation. Anticipating salvation. Hosanna. Save now to the son of David. We heard that term last week. As the two blind men. Lord Son of David, have mercy on me. Right? This understanding of the Messiah, the Son of David who would come and rule and reign. So you know as they cry out, save now to the Son of David, there's a messianic expectation that they believe is being fulfilled in their time. To, to reinforce that, we see Psalm 118.26 quoted. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Messiah is here. He's coming to assume his throne. Save us now from our enemies. Hosanna in the highest. There's praise. There's prayer. There's expectation. Our Messiah has indeed come. Save, Jesus. Save. Saved from what, though? That's where we see the tension here. Because as we understand the passage, the crowd has misplaced expectation and understanding about what salvation truly meant. And I wonder if we have a similar issue here this morning. We know Jesus saves, but what does Jesus save from? What are the ultimate saving purposes that are now being taken into effect. This crowd has identified properly. Yes, he's the Messiah. This crowd is quoting all the right passages and applying them to the right person. But their understanding of what they would be saved from was small. And it was also distorted. They expected Jesus or their Messiah to assume assume an earthly throne to rid them of Rome. It was as simple as that. To restore the glory of the nation of Israel here on earth. And so as they cried out, Hosanna, save us, they were saying, save us from Rome. Save us from their oppression. Please assume your throne and get rid of these guys and restore The glory of Israel on earth. That's what they hoped for. That's what they expected. And I wonder if some of us have this similar uh, struggle. We know Jesus is Savior, 
But from what has Jesus saved me from? Has Jesus come to save me from poverty? That's the prosperity gospel. Jesus came to save me from having a very uh, insignificant bank account. Or what about this? Jesus has come to save me from social inequalities. As if that were primarily what Jesus has come to save us from. As important and significant as those things are, and the church should always be fighting for, for, for justice in the world and encouraging that, we can easily think that that's what Jesus is all about. That's the social gospel. But that's not ultimately what Jesus has come to save us from. Jesus has not ultimately come to just make life easier, happier, safer, better. Jesus has come to save us from a much more uh, uh, deep and internal predicament than just the temporal realities that we can get consumed with on a day-to-day basis. Jesus has come to save. And that cry, save now, is an appropriate one for Jesus. But ultimately, Jesus has come to save us from our deepest, most eternal, problematic enemies, and that is Satan, sin, and death. That's what Jesus has come to save us from. If you want to hit it real precise, Jesus has come to save us from sin. That's what Jesus has come to save us from. But they don't see it ultimately. And their their expectation of salvation is distorted. Please don't misunderstand what Jesus has come to save you from. It's your sin that separates you from a holy God that leaves you deserving eternal punishment. You need to be saved from your sins. That's your most problematic issue. That's the thing that threatens your eternity, your sin. And Jesus, the good news of this passage, has come to save us from it. Don't miss that. Hosanna. Save now, Jesus. Save me from my sins. And that's what he's done. And so we understand why he doesn't just come to assume an earthly glorious throne. He comes with the expectation of serving by giving his life. He's the servant king. The servant king becomes the saving king because he gives his life. He lays it down for us. That's the king we know and worship in Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? A king that humbly serves in such a way to save us from our enemies, namely our sin. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to give his life as a ransom payment for many. Jesus is Savior. He's Lord. He's King. And he is Savior. Turn to him as such. See him as such. He's Savior. Some of you here today have never turned and trusted in Christ for salvation. And Matthew's saying, he's Savior. Turn to him for salvation. And you may be here today feeling stuck and hopeless in sins that you can't seem to uh, stop. This brings such hope 
and assurance for us as we wrestle and struggle with the defeated foe because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Continue to see him as Savior. Know that he has saved you from your sin and will continue to save you by his Spirit. And he will one day save you when he welcomes you into his eternal kingdom. Amen? It's Jesus. He's Savior. And so he comes into the city, and he enters, and the whole city stirred up, verse 10. And they ask that question, who is this? We know he's Lord. We know he's King. We know he's Savior. And now we know what the crowds say said, this is the prophet Jesus. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's a true statement. Jesus is the prophet. Amen? Jesus is the one who speaks on God's behalf, who reveals God's will, and who represents him and brings about his purposes in the world. Jesus is the prophet. Amen? But this answer reveals still some remaining confusion. At the very least, inadequacy. Who they understand Jesus to be. He is the prophet. That's true. But Jesus is so much more than this. It's like what you may hear today. Jesus was a great teacher. Is that true? Amen. Jesus was a great teacher. But was that all that he was? No. He was so much more than a great teacher. Right? He's Lord. He's King. He's Savior. That's who he is. So they say say something true, but they miss out on the totality of all that he is. Maybe that's you here today. You know some true things about Jesus. But maybe in this journey from Bethpage to Jerusalem, you've come to know Jesus more. That was my hope. You've come to see him more fully and appreciate him more deeply. You understand that Jesus is the promised king who has come to save you from your sins. That's what Palm Sunday reveals and celebrates for us. That Jesus has come as the promised king to save us from our sins. Amen? Amen. I think that really comes to us and and addresses what we can often fall prey to living in this world. And that's hopelessness. Despair. Day in and day out, seeing the world in which we live, the atrocities, the tragedies, the wars, the conflict, the division, the discord. You see all that, not to mention all that we deal with in our personal lives. With our own sin. With the sin of others that come at us and hurt us. We begin to wonder, where is God in all this? Does he care? Will God do anything? Will he act mercifully, powerfully? Will this ever change? 
Am I stuck in this reality forever? you got to understand, that's where Israel was at this time. Centuries waiting for God to be faithful to His Word. Maybe doubting this morning. You find your place, doubt yourself in a place of doubt. Wondering if this is real. Could this really be true? There's so much inconsistency in the world, even in the church. Can this be real? And that leads us to despair. And it leads us to hopelessness. In our workplaces, in our marriages, in our relationships, even in our churches. You see, when all hope was gone for Israel, Jesus came. Amen? When all hope is gone in our life, Jesus came. He fulfilled the prophecies. He kept the word of God. And he brought about victory through service over our enemies. Amen? Don't forget that. Don't forget that. In the midst of our hopelessness, Jesus has come. Right? And he has fulfilled the word. He's kept the promise. And he's brought about all the saving blessing that God had promised to his people. And here we are still now, waiting, waiting, right? Living in between the first coming and the second coming of King Jesus. So again, you look back and you see all of God's faithfulness. We look forward with an expectation and hope that the one who came, is the one who will come. That one day he will return, just as he said, in all the conflict and tension and struggle and pain and hurt and tears and sorrows that we have experienced in this life will be gone. And we will see him face to face. And we will become like him. And we will not know sin any longer. We're a people who live in a hard time, but always in hope because Christ has come and because Christ will come. Amen? He said it in the final verses of the book of Revelation. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. When all hope is gone, Christ has come to save us from our sin. When all hope is gone, Christ will come to fully and finally and decisively save us from our sins. Amen? Amen. This is a shocker. I was watching ESPN this week. And I heard something that stuck with me. One sportscaster said this in talking about 
an unnamed NBA player. He said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. The, the thing is, like, people say who they are, right? A lot of words. People say who they are. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. In this passage, Jesus has shown us who he is. Believe him. Believe him. See Jesus who he is, as who he has shown himself to be. Worship him as Lord. Make yourself available to serve him as your king. Right? Trust in him. Rest in him as your savior. Listen to him. Learn from him as your prophet. For all that he is, maybe today, this isn't just dealing with ignorance. You didn't know Jesus. Maybe it's not just that um, you had a distorted view, correcting you of that distortion, right? Or even the inadequacy. Maybe you know him more fully now, okay? Maybe what's really being addressed today is your unresponsiveness to who he is. Respond to Jesus as he has shown himself to be. Respond. Worship him. Right? Serve him. Trust him. Until he returns. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this word, for this revelation. I pray that Jesus was clearly presented in a way that calls for response. By your spirit, move within the hearts of the men and women and children here. Draw them to yourself. May they see Christ for all that he is. May they worship, serve, and trust him. In Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we as the people of God have the opportunity to uh, come to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. And in this time, we celebrate our servant king. The one who came to serve, the one who came to give his life as a ransom payment for many. This is our salvation. Amen? Right? We do this not because we're doing something for God, as we often think. No, God is doing something for us. He is providing grace that we need to sustain our faith in these difficult days. We come together as the people of God to feast upon his promises and his grace. And of course, we anticipate another day, another age, where we will eat with him in his kingdom. Luke chapter 22 records the, the, the upper room and the supper that took place. It says this, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink 
of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This meal is a new covenant celebration meal. Amen? That's what it is. It's for those who belong to the new covenant community, the church of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you believe in Jesus and you rest on him for salvation and you have been baptized into his church, you are welcome to come and receive the elements as they are dispersed in a moment to celebrate his finished work on your behalf. If you're here today and you do not believe in Christ, or still trying to understand more about what it means to be someone who trusts and follows Jesus, you've not been baptized into his church, we simply ask that you abstain from this so that we can be obedient to the scriptures and the kind of meal that this is. But understand this, we are here always to answer your questions, to help you understand more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. At this time, I'll invite the ushers to come forward. They're going to serve uh, in two stations. Uh, and in just a moment, we're going to invite you to come forward. Understand that we have gluten-free bread and juice provided for you. And so we ask that as you come down the center to receive the elements, you return on the outside back to your seat and know that we will partake of this all together in unison. Let me pray, and then I'll invite you to come forward. Father, we thank you so much for your perfect provision of Christ Jesus, who has saved us from our sins. We thank you that these elements remind us symbolically of his broken body on our behalf and the cup as his blood that was shed for us. Lord, I pray that we would come in faith, that your spirit would uh, call these things to our mind, and that he would do a work in us as we receive it with thanksgiving. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, please stand and come forward and receive the elements and return to your seat.